Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like mo. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which the three of them fell. 
the horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. And after them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting king, kingdom and all the rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Well, I'm sure as you heard Bill read Daniel 7, you will have noticed that there is a marked change of style and content as we move from the first six chapters of the book into the latter six chapters of Daniel. And that shift can feel quite, quite a significant jolt, can't it? It's a bit like uh, someone has changed the TV channel from perhaps seeing a, a natural history program to the roar and the noise of a rugby game. It's a real shift, isn't it? And it's right we feel that jolt because Daniel 7 is at the start of the second part of the book of Daniel. And there are several important shifts that are going on that we need to notice as we move into chapter 7. There is, as you will see in verse 1, a time shift. So to this point, the book has been moving chronologically through the reign of different kings and Daniel's life with his friends And Daniel likes to give time indicators, doesn't he, at the start of each of the events of the chapters. And in chapter 7 and verse 1, we read that we are now moving back to the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. So we're going back a few decades to the time between chapters 4 and 5 before the fall of Belshazzar. So there's a time shift, and we get similar markers in the chapters that follow as we move through these different visions. So these visions given to Daniel are given at points in the history of the book that we've already worked through. So we're shifting in terms of time, but also we're shifting in terms of perspective because previously Daniel was telling us about events that happened to him and his friends during the various uh, rulers of Babylon, the reign of those rulers. Now some of those rulers were given visions and at Point, Daniel's role was to give interpretation of those visions. But now, the perspective changes because Daniel is the one who receives the visions that go forward. So he's a recipient of visions and he asks for interpretation of those visions. 
So that tells us something significant. It tells us that, that these visions of the latter, latter part of the book are especially for the people of God, and especially for them as they live through the reign of these different kings, and indeed, as we'll see, through all of history. So there's a time shift, there's a perspective shift, but perhaps most noticeably, there is a style shift. Because this is what we call apocalyptic literature. Now, when you hear that, you might think, well, Matthew, Easter Sunday evening, after a warm Easter weekend, we're really going to step into apocalyptic literature. And we are, because that's what Daniel 7 is all about. But we need to see that this kind of literature, through it, the future is being revealed through visions and pictures. And what's going on here is that Daniel is recording for us the things that he saw in this vision. But the big thing we need to see as we look at apocalyptic literature is as we read it, what we are to take in is the whole picture, the big picture, the, the whole canvas of what's being communicated. So perhaps as you heard it being read, you thought, well, there's lots of little details here that I'm, I wonder what that means and I wonder what this means. And we'll try and get into some of those as far as we can. But the most important thing as we read this and as we hear it is that we get a, a picture of, of the big scope of what's being communicated through each of the visions. So rather than being too focused on specific details, we're going to try and get the big picture and delve into some of the details as we go through. So as we read apocalyptic literature like this, one way of thinking what's going on here is it's a bit like looking at a picture in an art gallery. You know, those massive canvases that you can see and, and soak up as you sit on a bench. In the first instance, as you look at it, what you need to do is to take in the whole canvas and take in the impression of the whole picture. It might be calming, it might be distressing, it might be intriguing, but that's the first thing you need to grasp as you, as you see the whole vision in that sense. Now, as you've done that, you might, looking at the canvas, focus on particular elements of what the artist has painted and represented there, and they might be interesting and important to look at. But you only do that after you've got a sense of the whole. So as we think about the meaning of this chapter, that's what we need to do. We need to get a sense of the whole, and as we do that, we will pick out details. But rather than perhaps thinking, as some do, that in this chapter we are to get into the minutiae of the details, seeing perhaps that God is giving us a clear timeline for all of history like that, rather than delving into all the specific details of the visions, what we need to do, first of all, is get that bigger picture. Now, now we can think about some of the detail here, and it's right that we do that because it's given for our good. And, and sometimes in this passage and in other passages, the details will be linked to historical events. And we can do that with certainty when the passages do it for us. There are, there are other times when we can make links to historical events when we see clear markers between the visions and things that we know have happened in history since the book of Daniel. And that's appropriate to do that. But we need to be especially careful when we're seeking to make predictions about the future based on these visions. And we need to do that because what is being communicated here is being communicated through this apocalyptic form. And so we can't be absolutely certain about some of the future things. There'll be some mystery, some uncertainty as we look at some of the detail. And we need to be cautious about that. But it's the big picture that matters most. 
And as we look at the big picture, what is God doing through this chapter? Well, God is giving us a lens through which we should think about the events of history and of the events that are to come. That's what God is doing. He is saying, see history as I want you to see it. Understand what has happened. Understand what will happen happen with that perspective. And so this evening, as we work through the details, if you find some of the details complicated and we're not sure about how they all link together, that's okay. That's okay because we don't need to get into all the detail to benefit from it because we can grasp the bigger picture. So I encourage you with that as we look at this passage and as we work through these other chapters of Daniel together. And we might find some parts confusing. There are some things that we may not fully understand now, and we may not understand some of those things before heaven. That's okay as well, because we're going to focus on the big picture. So what is this big picture? What is this lens God gives us for how we are to see history? We're going to see three things this evening, and the first is this. In verses 1 to 8, the first thing we see is that human kingdoms will only go in one direction. Human kingdoms will only go in one direction. In the first eight verses of the chapter, Daniel sees several scenes that represent the beastly rule of human kings and their kingdoms. We know that because that is what the angel tells uh, Daniel Uh, There in verse 17, he says, The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. So let's work through these four beasts at the start of the the vision. And we see there in verse 4 that the first beast is like a lion with the wings of an eagle. And we read that his wings are torn off. He is lifted up to stand on on two feet and he is given the mind of a human. Now, this seems to be a picture, very clearly, of King Nebuchadnezzar, someone who we've already met. Because in chapter 4, he was humbled by God. He was made to be like a beast, wasn't he? And then the Lord restored his humanity. He he had his mind restored to him in that sense. So that first beast is almost certainly Nebuchadnezzar. The the second beast is a fearsome bear in verse 5 who is, we see, devouring three ribs and then is told to go and eat more. And most people think this second beast, this fearsome bear, represents the the Medo-Persian Empire. That was the empire that followed the Babylonian Empire, and we've met two rulers from that empire in the book of Daniel. We've met Darius and we've met Cyrus. And the bear eating three ribs here probably points to the fact that that kingdom uh, ate up three great empires, Egypt, Lydia, and Babylon. So the second beast is the Media Persian Empire, probably. (laughs) The third beast uh, is a swift leopard with four heads, verse 6, who can see in every direction. And this is probably a picture of the empire of Greece, the empire that followed the Media Persia Empire and, and it, which uh, swept through um, a huge uh, area of land through the conquest of Alexander the Great. We know from history that he conquered the areas of Egypt, Greece, and then stretched right out to, to India by just age 31. He did it with great swiftness and speed. 
So he probably thinks a picture of the empire of Greece. And then we come in verse 7 to the fourth beast. And this beast is described in the least detail. It's almost as if Daniel can't bring himself to give a physical description of it. We just read of teeth and horns in verse 7. And then later uh, on in the second half of the chapter, we read about claws. But it's almost as if uh, Daniel can't describe the detail because he finds this beast so terrifying. And the beast is powerful, leaving a trail of destruction wherever he goes. This fourth beast has ten horns, and then from those ten horns, a little horn rises up. In verse 8, we learn this little horn has eyes like a human being and speaks boastfully. Now, we'll come back to him later uh, because he comes up a few times in the chapter. But identifying this fourth beast is harder. Some people think that it could be representing the kingdom of Rome, but perhaps we should not tie this beast to one particular kingdom, but rather see this final fourth beast as representing all the evil kingdoms of this world in a kind of summary form. And so perhaps it begins with Rome, but it's more than Rome as well, stretching out beyond that. So that's the the first part of the vision in verses 1 to 8. And so having seen that, let's now stand back and ask, what is the bigger picture here? What is God teaching us in these first eight verses? Well, he's showing to us in this vivid detail the wickedness and brutality of all human kingdoms. You would not want to meet any of these beasts in real life, would you? They are scary and horrible. And this last beast is so fearsome, he's almost beyond description. And it seems as we go through the beasts that they become worse and worse as times go on. So what's being shown here is is that in all kingdoms, they will have degrees of wickedness. Some might be better than others, some might be worse than others. But they were being shown here that in some ways... Every human kingdom is beastly in that sense. And in Daniel's own experience, he knew that personally. Because who did he know of by the time of this vision? Well, he knew of Nebuchadnezzar. And he saw some of the things he did and saw the things he did to his friends. And he knew of Belshazzar. He experienced that. But he would need to remember that going into the future when other kings would rise up like Darius and Cyrus who might seem less fierce on the outside. But deep down, all rulers are sinners and so in some way are wicked. So we're seeing the the beastliness and the wickedness of, of human kingdoms and rulers in that sense. And we're being shown in particular here that this sin and brutality is not natural. And what do I mean by that? Well, well, in picturing these kings as beastly animals, the Lord is reminding us of how sin has distorted God's good creation order. Because there's a reversal here of what should be the case, isn't there? Because remember that in the, in the creation, who is established to rule over God's creation? Well, it's man, isn't it? And they're to rule over the beasts. But here there's a distortion in how it's presented. There's a, there's a, there's a turning of things on their head in that sense. And what we're being shown here is that these sinful, wicked, and sometimes brutal rulers are not what God created at the beginning, but they are what sin has done to our worlds. 
And they are, what we are, they are what we experience because that is what sin does to God's good creation, even to kings and their kingdoms. Now, we don't have to look far for a reminder of that. Bill has already taken us through in sharing the update about Ukraine. And I'm sure we have ourselves been personally shocked by hearing stories of the evil done by Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. And of some of the things that have been done by Russian soldiers to civilians in Ukraine, which, well, they're beyond description, aren't they? Horrible things. And perhaps if you think of the last hundred years of history, there are countless other wicked and brutal rulers, including Hitler, Stalin, and many others. God is reminding us, he is telling us in this vision that human history will be marked by these wicked, horrible, brutal rulers. Now, that is not, we shouldn't respond to that reality by becoming hardened to it. We should be moved by it, shouldn't we? We should be moved by this. And we should do all that we can, as we heard of, of, of individuals, of, of organizations, of churches and pastors, as Bill reminded us, of all they're seeking to do to stop evil, to protect life and people. That's what good rulers are seeking to do. That's what uh, good uh, soldiers are seeking to do. But at the same time, in, in, in all the, the work to push that back and stop it and restrict it, we shouldn't be surprised by it. Because that's what sin has done to God's good creation. Because through this vision, God is reminding us that we are not in Eden anymore. That sin and suffering will be with us until Christ returns to make all things new. The human heart longs for peace, doesn't it? The human heart longs to get back to Eden. And maybe perhaps over the last two years, we have seen some longing for a kind of utopia, a kind of perfect world here and now where we want governments to make perfect decisions leading to perfect outcomes so that we never face suffering in the world. And a Christian view of human nature and therefore of the progress of history is different, isn't it? Because sin means that we cannot create a perfect world ourselves here and now. We work against sin, but we'll never be free from it. That peace will not come this side of glory. But as we try and seek to bring an end to suffering, we're not pursuing that total peace here and now, because if we are, we will be exhausted and we will be forever disappointed. Because we need something else in our view. We need a different kind of hope. We need to see a different reality. And that's what we come to now. Because we need a bigger vision. God wants us, at the same time as seeing all the brutality of the kingdoms of this world, he wants us to know that something else is beyond all this. He wants us to see something bigger and greater. And he wants us to know the peace and comfort that comes from that. And here we come to the second part of the vision as we move into verses 9 to 14, where we see that peace comes from seeing God's throne. Verses 9 to 14. 
You know, it's a stark shift, isn't it? In the first eight verses, you have fast-moving, chaotic scenes. Then in verses 9 to 14, you have this vision of God. And this vision of God that brings great calm. Our translators have, have helped us to capture something of that, even how they've set out the text. And it's peaceful, isn't it? Now, these, these two, there are two aspects of the vision in verses 9 to 14. One of the Ancient of Days, and then one of the Son of Man coming in his glory to establish his kingdom. And these two aspects of the vision aren't chronological with one following the other. But what's going on here is they are two solid theological realities, certainties that we need to see clearly. That's what's going on in the middle part of the vision here. Let's look at the first together, where the Ancient of Days comes to judge, verses 9 to 10. The contrast to the other kings and the kingdoms couldn't be greater, could it? You know, unlike the beasts that come and go so quickly, God's title is what here? The Ancient of Days. Speaks of how he has and always will be. His clothing there is white. His hair is white, pointing to his perfect wisdom and his moral purity. Nothing like the kingdoms that we've thought of in verses 1 to 8. And he's seated there on his throne to rule, bringing stability and sanity. His throne is flaming with fire and a stream of fire flows from it. This is the fire of God's judgment upon the evil that we've just seen in the first eight verses. And he sits there in that peaceful scene in the heavenly courts. He is surrounded by the great multitude of the angelic host in all the majesty of the one rightful true king of the universe. And what does he do? Well, in verse 10, we see that he comes to judge because the books of judgment are opened. Everything that has happened has been recorded. Everything done in secret, everything done in public will be brought to light and dealt with by the perfect judge of the whole universe. And he acts in verse 10 in decisive judgment. The most fearful of the four beasts, the fourth is slain, his reign ends, the other beasts lose their authority. And what are we seeing here in this first part? We're seeing that peace and comfort comes through knowing that God will come to judge. Nothing done will be hidden from his sight. No evil done in Ukraine. No evil done in all of human history. No evil done to you in your life, or indeed by you in your life, will not be known by the Lord who sees all. And comfort comes from the people of God to know that God will one day come in judgment. Do you see that, friends? Sometimes I think as Christians we're afraid of speaking of judgment, aren't we? It's kind of a thing that we don't want to talk about. But actually it brings great peace because it means that all that's evil is dealt with. All that's evil is dealt with. But there is more, and that is how peace comes. Peace comes through knowing that God's judgment will come. He will deal with all wrong in the end. And then there's more, though, because in verses 12, sorry, 13 and 14, 
as we move on to the second part of this vision, we see the Son of Man coming to reign over God's kingdom. Now, as you look with me at the description of the Son of Man in verses 13 and 14, he is clearly a divine figure. He comes on the clouds of heaven like the Lord God. He comes into the close presence of God, which no mere man could do. He receives dominion and power of authority. He accepts worship from all nations and peoples. So we can say this Son of Man is a divine figure. But of course, we can say more than that, can't we? We know the identity of the Son of Man. Who is this? Well, this Son of Man is the Lord Jesus Christ, friends. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man, and perhaps the most stark example of that is in Mark 14, 62, where he is there before the high priest. He is standing there before the high priest, and he says these words, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is saying, this is me. This is me. This is, this is me coming to rule with authority. And here, Christ receives authority and power from the Ancient of Days. And in doing so, he brings in an everlasting kingdom. Establishes a kingdom that will never end. These four kingdoms rise and fall, but Christ's kingdom endures. And when does he receive this kingdom? When does his kingly reign begin? Well, Jesus tells us that happens following his cross and resurrection from the dead. What an appropriate passage for us to come to on Easter Sunday evening because Jesus says following his death and resurrection, Matthew 28 and verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has it through his death and resurrection. And so Jesus comes and he ascends to the Father here. He begins his kingly reign. And this kingly reign has come in his death and resurrection. But there is also a sense in which it is to fully come in the future, isn't there? He rules and he reigns now, but the fullness of his rule will only be seen in the future when he returns on his second coming. So these are these two visions, this vision of God, the ancient of days, they're sitting in judgment, and then the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to establish his kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. How should it affect us? Well, friends, if our eyes are just on the kingdoms of this world and all that is happening, and all the chaos that is going on, we won't know peace, will we? But peace comes from having our eyes fixed upon God, who is now seated on this higher throne. From knowing that one day our God will come in judgment. From knowing that right now Jesus Christ reigns as king and we look forward to that day when his kingly reign will come in fullness in the future. In these visions, we are not promised that we will never know pain. But we are protected from panic, aren't we? Brings us peace. And friends, we need to use this lens as we digest the news each day. And as we feel our hearts responding to all that is happening. So that we might have this right perspective on all that is going on. God is coming in judgment. Jesus Christ reigns as king. 
And that is especially important as we come to the final element of this vision, our third point, that we see that God's people will know difficulty, but the eternal outcome is secure. Verses 15 through to 28. So having seen the whole vision in verse 15, we read that Daniel is troubled in his mind and disturbed. And then he asks to understand what he has seen. And we read in verses 17, 18, there is a a summary interpretation of what he has seen. Then Daniel moves in verses 19 to 22 to give us more detail of what he saw. And then we get more detailed interpretation of the vision. But then it's striking that again, at the end of verse 28, having received the interpretation from the angel, Daniel is now deeply troubled and turns pale. So after seeing the vision in verse 15, uh, he is disturbed and troubled in spirit. And then having heard the interpretation, he is deeply troubled and and his, his physical appearance is affected. Why is he responding like this? Well, it's because the vision and interpretation predict significant suffering for the people of God. Daniel is a human like us. He cares for brothers and sisters in the Lord, both in his own time and in the future. And what he sees the little horn who comes out of the fourth beast doing is he sees him hurting the people of God. Little horn keeps popping up. He's in verse 8, in verse 11, then in verse 21, and 24 and 25. And this little horn is an antichrist figure. Another Christ in that sense. He he challenges God as he speaks bothful words against the Lord in verses 8, 11, and 25. He wants to take God's place, so he tries to change the set times and laws that God sets up in verse 25, that God establishes in creation. And then in verse 21 and in verse 25, we read that he persecutes the church. He wages war against them. He oppresses God's holy people. The best way to understand this little horn is that he arises at many times through human history as different historical figures who persecute the church. And so as John says, uh, many antichrists have come, 1 John 2.18. But then at the end of history, his evil acts become focused in a single individual who appears just before the Lord returns. And we met him as we worked through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this antichrist figure uh, who comes just before Jesus returns. And what God is doing through this part of the vision is he is preparing his people for difficulty into the future, for suffering and trouble and persecution. And that's what troubles Daniel, because he is rightly concerned for the suffering of the Lord's people, and any believer should be concerned, because God's people are a family. And maybe, friends, as we think of this future suffering, we're not just rightly concerned for those who will suffer in the future or those suffering in different countries around our worlds. We're also troubled for ourselves and perhaps for our families into the future because we might sense that society is becoming less and less friendly towards Christians. We might sense that going forward, obedience is going to be more costly in the future. 
But as we, say, as we feel those things, and we rightly feel those things, we need real hope, don't we? We need hope for ourselves and hope for all of God's people. And there is real hope in this passage, particularly focused in verses 25 to 27. Let's look at them together. Because in verse 25, we see that the suffering of God's people is time-limited. The oppression that is done by the little horn will be for time, times, and half a time. What does that mean? So the period of time defined by the Lord, and God knows how long it lasts. He has determined how long it will last, and it's not forever. It's time-limited. And that following that that oppression and that, that persecution of God's people, verse 26, God will come to judge. And the outcome of the judgment is not in doubt, is it? God will rule in the favor of his people. And then, verse 27, the people of God will be given this everlasting kingdom. That's speaking of our future hope as believers. That's speaking of the glories of the new creation that is to come. But just notice how this everlasting kingdom is described. How is it described? It's described as their possession. Verse 27, it will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Verse 18, they will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Verse 22, they possessed the kingdom. It's astonishing, isn't it, that it's described in this way. And and it's an amazing thought that the kingdom of God, that is the future hope of every Christian... Well, you don't just get to live in it like, you know, a renter would get to possess a house for a year or so. It is so certain that you get to own it, friends. It is yours because of Christ. What a great reason for hope. That though the kingdoms of this world come and go, and though they are so very beastly and horrible, there is an enduring kingdom that is glorious and great, that belongs to God's people, and that can be never taken away. Friends, doesn't God's word give us such wonderful, solid reasons for hope? You know, some people are naturally pessimistic about the future. Maybe that's you. Some people are naturally optimistic about the future, and maybe that's how the Lord has made you. But our attitude towards the ultimate future as God's people should never be shaped by our temperament. It should be shaped by God's word. And so, in an ultimate sense, this passage calls every Christian to be an optimist about the ultimate future. Perhaps not about the immediate, perhaps not about the the medium term, and even until the Lord comes. But we should always and ever be optimistic about the eternal outcome, because it is not in doubt. And this, friends, is how God wants us to see history. This is how we need to pray that brothers and sisters in Ukraine, in North Korea, in every country in the world where Christians are facing persecution, and indeed should we face it in the years to come, this is the sight that we all need and need to pray for them that they would have too. That human kingdoms are beastly. That future suffering of the people of God will be a reality. But there is a higher throne from which God will judge all evil and from which Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, reigns today.
He is king. And so in that sense, the ultimate future is never in doubt because we serve a God who wins and who always wins. And by his grace and according to his mercy, our future is secure in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let's pray for all those who suffer persecution. Let's pray for ourselves that we would have that great sight of God in his glory and his judgment and Christ in his reign today. And let us be sure of what God's word calls us to be sure of, that we might be strengthened to stand and proclaim and make him known. Our Lord and our God, how we thank you that your word equips us for every situation that we might face in this world. How we thank you that your word gives us this framework, this vision of reality, this lens through which we are to see all of history. Oh Lord, would you help us to have that ever in our view? Lord, we are so saddened to see the brutality of the kingdoms of this world. It's happened in the past, it's going on in the present, it will come in the future. We particularly grieve for your people who suffer persecution all around this world today and for those who will be persecuted into the future. And we pray that we, like them, would be enabled to stand because our eyes are on something bigger and greater that is certain and sure. Fill us with hope and great confidence that because of your greatness and your glory and because of the work of your Son, you have conquered, you will conquer, and you are coming again in the Lord Jesus Christ. So seal your word to our hearts and may our hope ever be for that eternal kingdom. And may our joy ever, may ever, may ever be in the reign of our King, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.